Father, we, uh, we thank you for our marvelously made bodies. You have constructed us in such a way where we are able to fight off disease. We thank you, Lord, that you restore our health. For you are the great physician, the healer. We ask for all those who may be suffering still, uh, in this body especially, that have the COVID. I pray that you would heal them up, restore them, even this day, even at the time of this prayer. I pray that you would strengthen them and that they'd be able to return to their normal activities by tomorrow. And Lord, you would be glorified through this prayer. I also ask that you would help us to apprehend the information in your word, that it would not fall on deaf ears, that we would put it into practice. You did this for our benefit, gave us this word, and so, Lord, help us to employ what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're down to the faith plus works, or faith and works, and I've explained at least three times that Romans teaches about the inner saving faith from God's perspective, and James talks about the outer serving faith from a human perspective. When it comes to doing works, it is something that will happen just naturally for us. Now, when it, the works present themselves to us, it's a decision for us to make, whether to do something that the Lord, we think, wants us to do or not. And those opportunities, and I'll get into this a little more in a bit, but when those opportunities present themselves... Not only do we make the choice, but how much effort we put into it is important as well. If we are ever finding ourselves saying, oh, here's another opportunity to serve, and you kind of do it reluctantly, or when are you ever going to stop serving? When can somebody else do some serving around here? You know, and, and we can get this attitude. It's, it's like, well, is that the attitude we want to have? That's the fleshly attitude when it comes to works. Now, works do not save us. But works are something that happens as a part of our salvation. Now, you've heard me use the little story, the, the little uh, description of how a fruit tree produces fruit. And I've told you before, have you ever walked through a fruit orchard and heard the trees straining to produce the fruit? You don't. Now, I want you to imagine this. Some people believe it's difficult to produce the works. Imagine you are at the gym if you still go to the gym or not, and you have in front of you a barbell. And that barbell has a couple hundred pounds on it, and you are getting ready to squat. You put your hands on the barbell, and you extend your arms, and you're getting ready to press up. What does your face look like? Count of three, I want you to have that look on your face. Ready? One, two... Oh, yeah, that's really descriptive. Some of you did nothing. You know what I'm talking about when you just... And you're getting ready to do that lift, that dead press that's going up like that? Well, that's not how it works with the works. It's not that hard. Now, there may be some works that God calls us to do that are going to cause you to sweat and toil and such. But when it comes to actually performing the works, it's going to be... Do you guys know what a lazy river is? It's where you go to a hotel and you lay on the mat and it just kind of goes around and you're looking at each other and every once in a while you get off your noodle and you dip your head in and that's how the works come to us. It's just like that. It is effortless and God wants us to take advantage of those times when the works come. Now verse 14 
there's an argument being made here. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? It's a rhetorical question. It means there's no good in it at all if a man claims to have faith and there's no works. Can such a faith save him? Again, a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Now, it segues into actually doing something for the poor here. Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In in other words, you're extending a blessing without any action to meet a genuine need. You're just going, oh, God bless you, be warmed and fed. And yet they're starving and they don't have any clothes. And I think it's a valid criticism of those in the world when somebody says, well, my thoughts and prayers are with you. I hear that from somebody and I think that's kind of useless as far as helping somebody who is truly in need. Uh, it, you know, in verse 17 it says, In the same way, by faith itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. So the demons know who God is. They have seen God. They believe that he exists, but they will never do anything or even one thing to help anyone at any time. And that's the distinction that James is making here. The demons believe, but they have no works. And you're like the demons if you believe in God and you have no works. It's not a saving faith. It is a false faith. Now, when it comes to doing these works, I think that there is a distinction on the types of works that we do. We can do things because they're nice. It brings happiness to someone, even to a stranger. Acts of kindness is what I call these. They would be helping somebody move, providing a meal when somebody goes into the hospital, offering a cup of water, visiting someone just to see how they are, helping with a yard project. Remember there was this guy, uh, Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Eliezer of Damascus was the, the chief servant in the household of Abraham. Once Abraham had Ishmael, and then later on he had Isaac. When Isaac came of age, Abraham wanted to get a bride for him. And so what he did was he charged Eliezer of Damascus to go to his, uh, his family, go see Laban. And when he went to see Laban, Rebekah was there. Rebekah and Laban, they were both uh, brother and sister. They were the children of Bethuel. Uh, and when the Eliezer, when he went and he found Rebekah, he had this whole caravan and probably lots of camels, lots of good, lots of riches. And when he showed up there, as Abraham told him, go to my family, get a bride for my son. He showed up and he prayed to God. He said, God, I pray that you would show your servant, Abraham, kindness is the word that is used in the NIV. And he said, when I get to this well or when I'm at this well, May the woman who is the one to be chosen to be the bride of Isaac, may she come out when I ask her to give me water. She gives me water and she says, and I will water your camels too. And the description, she comes out, she's a very beautiful virgin. She comes out and she does exactly that. 
Eliezer of Damascus turns back to God and says, Thank you that you have shown your servant Abraham kindness. And so this, it, this act of kindness. And then there's this act of mercy. The act of mercy, if you got your Bibles over in Luke 10, I think you'll be familiar with this story. It is the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. It says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Verse 31. It says, A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law said the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So here you have someone helping an individual who is unable to help themselves. Now, I've been to Jericho and the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I was there before they made the freeway going down second time i was there they made this nice road that goes all the way down but the time patty and i were there it was not even a two-lane road and we were in a huge bus and this bus is making these hairpin turns and as you look over the edge it goes down several hundred feet and we are so close to the edge you cannot see the edge of the road all you can see is the ravine that's down below. And this guy's making all these turns going down. And at the time of Jesus, this would have been a trail going down, very precarious trail. And he's talking about this guy that he was beaten, he was robbed and left half alive or half dead. And this priest comes along and he sees him and it's basically be warmed and well fed and he goes around. Same thing with the Levite. Now who's the priest? Remember you had the <clears throat> the priest and the Levites. The priest were the Sadducees and the Sadducees that were the ruling class and they were the ones that were the high priest. That's where the family came from. The Levites were the ones that tended the temple or the tabernacle. They were the ones that would bring the sacrifices, commit the sacrifices. They were ones in charge of the care of the tabernacle first and then the temple. And then the Samaritan who was quote unquote a half breed in their eyes. They were not full Jews. That was the one who had compassion. And Jesus justified the Samaritan because of what he did. He just had mercy on this individual who was unable to do anything for himself. So we have two types of works. We have the kindness where you're just being kind. You know, you're doing things just because you want to be kind. Then there's the other one, mercy. You're extending mercy. Now, do you think the Samaritan man was inconvenienced? Yeah, it cost him something. In order to put this man on his donkey, is probably taken out of the way, had to go to the inn, had to take care of that, was going to come back. It was inconvenient for him and to the point where it cost him a sacrifice of some kind. 
So we see these good works, and we want to make sure that when we have the opportunity, we do either one. But then there is a third category, I believe, and these are acts of faith. There's performing an action for no other reason than you know that God will be pleased and blessed because of what you have done. Performing actions knowing that the personal physical harm might be a result of what you do. Let me say that again. You're going to do something that's an act of faith, and it may cause you harm. Not that you're looking for harm. I'm going to go out there and do this for the Lord, and I know I may die, but it's okay. It's, it's not like that. It's you're going out with the Lord's blessing because you want to do a good work, because you believe in Him, and He has called you to do certain things. To give an example of somebody who acted foolishly. I forget, and I'm just remembering this uh, off the top of my head. There was a, a young man. He thought he was going to be a missionary to this one tribe that was on an island. I forget if it's in the South Pacific or over by Indonesia, but they were hostile, very hostile. Anybody who tries to go to the island, they kill them. I remember seeing a picture of a small Cessna plane and underneath all the arrows that were in the plane, they tried to shoot down the plane. It looked like there were hundreds of arrows in the bottom of the plane. Well, this guy went in a boat, tried to get there. Well, they killed him. They shot him with arrows. If you kind of know that it's going to be a hostile environment and you think, well, God will protect me. Well, apparently not. This guy, he died and he wanted to be a missionary to them. So we don't want to do things that are foolish. We don't want to put ourselves in harm's way, but it may result in that. To give you another description, I read an article this morning of a man in Pakistan. He was a Christian automobile, uh, automobile repair man. And a Muslim came in to get his car repaired. Once he got the car repaired, since this man was a Christian, the Muslim man asked the Christian for a discount because he was a Muslim. He didn't give him the discount. He got into an argument with him. And because Sharia law is in force in Pakistan, they came and arrested the Christian. And now he's going to be killed because he did not give the Muslim a discount. Now, there's things like that that happen all the time in the world. But as far as being a Christian and when you step out and you want to do a good work, you want to make sure that you're doing a good work because not only has the Lord provided the opportunity, but you feel it's his will as well. It's difficult to know that sometimes, but you want to use wisdom in going out. You just don't want to throw wisdom to the wind and, and go ahead. Now, there are two people that are mentioned here, Abraham and Rahab, that did things for the Lord knowing that it would result in physical harm, at least possibly, especially with Abraham. Verse 20 says, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Now, you recall the story. Everybody thinks that Isaac was this young teenager. He was probably 17, 20, somewhere around then. Now, that's young men, that's usually when they're the strongest. They are fit, and, you know, back then, I, I don't think that there would have been a problem with obesity or anything like that. And he was a, a young, healthy man, blessed of the Lord, born as a result of a promise. And Abraham says, I'm going to sacrifice you. You know, he's an old guy. Come on. And he takes his son, and his son goes, Dad, I got the branches and everything for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? <laughs> you know, he starts heading up the hill, and he takes Isaac with him up the hill. And he goes, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me. And he binds him up. He sets him on top of the sticks up there. And he goes, Dad, do you know what you're doing here? And don't worry about it, son. It's going to be okay. 
And to think about that, that he, he did this. Was there a struggle of some kind? I don't think there was a struggle of any kind. But Isaac got up on there. Now, when God asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac, he didn't say, don't worry about it, I'll resurrect him. Because remember, God gave Abraham a promise. He said, you're going to have a son as a result of this promise that I'm going to give you. From Isaac will come this whole generation and your ancestors through Isaac will inherit the land. That was a promise that God gave to Abraham. So Abraham theorized in his own mind. He goes, you know, if he asks me to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac's going to have to be resurrected. So it's no big deal. I could just go ahead and kill him. (laughs) What kind of faith is that? That is like beyond measure. God never came back and said, don't worry, I'll resurrect him. He didn't say that. God just said, kill your son for me. Okay, God. And he just stepped out and he was going to do it. And he had to be stopped. He was going to do it. He was going to sacrifice his son. That's one case. Then you have Rahab. Well, first, in verse 22, it has a little more commentary on this. It says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And this word justified, it's a legal term. It means being declared right it's it's a judicial term being in a courtroom the judge bangs the gavel not guilty that type of thing or forgiven or the uh, record is going to be expunged it's going to be taken away completely and it's not going to be counted against you anymore so abraham was counted righteous or justified because of what he did and the faith that he had that is the strongest faith that's why he is called the father of faith. Now it goes on with Rahab here. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, this is an act of faith here. And one thing curiously missing to me is the fact that you don't ever see Abraham or Rahab praying about this. You don't see it in there. Abraham didn't go back and say, are you sure, Lord? Do you really want me to do that? You don't have any indication of that. Not that he didn't, but it's not listed there. And Rahab as well. Now, Rahab was a prostitute. She, I don't know if she was a a believer in God at that time, but you don't see that she's praying at all. Now, imagine the scenario of what's going on. Now, in the city of Jericho, there would have been buildings right on the wall, and that's where she hung out the the red cloth uh, outside to know that that was the place that the Jews were not to harm anyone who was in that building. And that's the promise that the spies gave to her. If you hang that outside the window, when we see it, we will not attack you. But the whole city, if you remember correctly, everybody was pretty much destroyed. The walls came tumbling down and she was left there with her family. Now, when she knew that they were coming, did she pray and go, God, is this what you want me to do? I don't think she did i think she just acted she just said you know what this is not going to go well for us i'm going to hide these spies i'm going to make sure everything's going good we're just going to do it because we'll be saved if we do this the whole family and so she 
did it because she believed what God was going to do. She believed the stories that had come to her that the Jews were like ants on the land. They were just everywhere. There were millions of them who were out there and they're going to die. And they had heard the stories about their conquest before they got to Jericho. And so she just said, well, I'm going to do this. And she did this knowing that it would save lives. And she did this knowing it could cost her her own life if she did this. Because she led the people in Jericho in another direction after she had despised. She did this by faith, trusting God that God would take care of her. And so these two things here are acts of faith. So there's the acts of kindness. There's the acts of mercy. And I believe these are pretty much the same just to different degrees and they didn't have to pray about doing these things at least it's not recorded for us that they did so and we want to make sure that we are operating in all three of these areas that we are being just simply kind because we can because we can do something that blesses someone else and then we can also have mercy on someone who is not able to help themselves and even if the problems that they are experiencing are brought on by their own self-desire and wrong decisions. I know no one in here has ever made a wrong decision. Everyone makes mistakes, and yet they fall into trouble, or everyone falls into trouble of some kind, and God says, be merciful to them, just as God is merciful to us. And so we want to make sure that verse 26, we understand this, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So we have the kindness, we have the mercy, and we do things just because we know that God would be pleased. He would want us to do something like this. Now, when we do these works, are you going to do works every single day? Do you wake up in the morning and say, what good work do you want me to do today? Could be. Usually, no. It's not like that. The works present themselves at different times. And when they do, and you go through a season of doing works, then there's a season of doing no works. And you go, well, why, why am I not doing other works? They, they haven't presented themselves to me. We know that John 15, 1 says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will, even, or that it will be even more fruitful. You guys know a little bit of uh, gardening, I think. You have some stone fruits out there. You prune them back, and it produces more. There's a response inside the plants. I remember that for this from my uh, botany uh, days. When a plant gets stressed, what will happen is usually it produces blooms, and it tries to get more fruit out there because it thinks it's going to die. And in it, that's why you prune it back. And when you prune it, you injure it. And the plant, even though it doesn't have a brain, it just kind of goes, oh, I'm in trouble now. I better put some more out there to keep the species going. You know, that type of thing. That's what it does. So when it's stressed a little bit, it will start producing the fruit. Same thing with us. When we are stressed, we actually get stronger. At the gym, when you stress the muscle, it gets stronger, right? But then when you produce fruit, and a lot of fruit trees like peach trees or nectarine trees, they put off these long, lanky branches, and the blooms come out, and then they start to go down, and they'll break. Well, you're supposed to go in and prune them back, and the inner branches, they get thicker, and then they start producing more blooms as a result of that, and you get more fruit. So God says, oh, you produce a little fruit? Good. Snip, 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 snip. And you go, 
this hurts. What, what are you doing? This stress comes in your life. You start producing more fruit. That's what God does for us as well. And if we abide in Jesus, the fruit will be produced because of the good works. Now, these good works that are produced, and the reason I say they, God wants these to come along and he puts them in our paths. It's not that we go out and we work for the works to be there. We don't have to do that. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, you're going to come across some opportunity. It's going to be right in front of you, and you go, Do I want to do it? Do I not want to do it? And you can choose to do it, or you can choose to walk away. If you choose to walk away, God will give it to somebody else, I believe. Like if somebody needs to be witnessed to and you have the chance to do it and you go, no, somebody else is going to come in and they're going to give them the word. They're going to evangelize them if it is at all possible. And so that's how God does these works. It's the lazy river. There's the action. It's just going around and somebody comes along and your wife or your husband says, oh, you need a little more sunscreen. And they put the sunscreen on you and you're going, oh, this is so wonderful. and This cool water and, and people get to do good works even in the midst of those streams. Or if it's a waterfall, you get to do the good works because God gives you the opportunity to do the works because he puts you exactly where he wants you. Remember, the book of Acts talks about you were born for a particular time, a particular place to meet particular people, to go to a particular church so you would do particular work. That's how it operates for us. It's not by accident. God determined that we would be born in this year. We'd be alive 2022. Why? Because he has works for us to do. And you know, when as Christians, everything that we're going through in the world, man, it's, it's getting bad out there. I try to keep up on the world news and everything that's going on. And it is, it's getting bad. And it's going to come our way. But when those things happen and this world comes along, Christians start saying, well, I don't know if I should have any more children because it's getting so bad. I don't know if I want to bring them into a world like this. And there's always that chance that it would be really bad for them. But there's always a good chance that you give birth or your children give birth or your great-grandchildren give birth to someone who is going to be great that is going to be part of the answer for the problems that are here. That's why he said, be fruitful and multiply. Not just add, not just one, not just two. Have a whole slew of them. Is it hard? It's incredibly hard. But as you get older, you get incredibly blessed. At least that's the way it's supposed to go. It doesn't always work out that way. But God, we still want to follow what he says. He is pleased with that. He is pleased when we follow what his word says to do. So we have the characteristics of faith that we've gone through. We have the faith that proves itself by works in chapter 2. We have the the control of the tongue in chapter 3 that we're going to deal with. And And it deals also with teachers in chapter 3. And we'll go there, James chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, of all the verses in the Bible, I think this is my least favorite. And I think you can guess why. Now, the word presume is not there in the original language. It just simply says, be there not many teachers among you. That's the way it reads. Why? Because they're going to be judged more strictly. 
why are they going to be judged more strictly? Now, now get a load of the scenario. And we know, and I'll give you the verses here, we know that priests are selected, elders are appointed, and teachers are selected by God, and we are called to salvation. All of those things are set up by God. God comes along and says, you, you're going to be a teacher. You go, okay, send me. You will be judged more harshly because you know what the word says and you're going to blow it. Okay, send me. You see the dilemma that is here? You're going to be chosen to teach, but you're going to know what the word says, what not to do, and you're going to blow it, and you're going to do those things that you're not supposed to do, and you're going to be judged more strictly because you know what not to do. Hooray. You hold up a little flag, and like, this is, this is just great, you know, but can somebody who's called to be a teacher be silent? No, they can't be silent. And, and so, like you, I try to do my best. Any te- teacher who's out there, the word, you try, but you fail. I was explaining a story to Patty uh, this morning. <clears throat> I left for work on Friday, and I, I pulled out in, uh, where I live, the particular street. There's a light that's probably 75 yards away. And so it was red, and it had just turned green, and I initiated my turn to get out on Lake Jennings Park Road. And all of a sudden, I hear behind me this horn that will not relent. And I'm looking. What? The person is behind me like I cut them off or something. And... Now, what would you do? Oh, bless you. No, I didn't do that. I I, I tapped the brake because I hadn't come to the next stoplight yet. I tapped the brake a little bit and I came to a stop. And then it started. What am I going to do? I'm going to put this thing in park. And I'm going to get out there and go up to their window. And I'm going to talk to this woman in this window. Like, why are you? I went through this whole scenario of what I was going to say and how I was going to say it. And I was going to just stand there and I was going to let her fume. And she would yell at me and I, you know, want to call her name. I'm doing this in my head, right? And I go, no, okay, just calm down, Bill. And the verse comes to mind, do not repay evil for evil. Okay. And so I go through the light again, and then I get onto the freeway. I'm going onto the freeway, and it is tight on the freeway. And so I work my way over to the fast lane, and you cannot move. You know, you're on the fast lane. She gets behind me. She is right on my tail. I mean, like within two feet of my tail. And, she's, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to break, or I'm going to slow down to like 25 miles an hour. You know, all these things going through my head. I'm going to pay you. But, and I'm a pastor. And how, am I unusual in this? Do, am I the only one that thinks that way? And I'm on the road doing this. And by the time I, I'm heading west on uh, Highway 8, and by the time I get to 2nd Street, it goes to three lanes. And I, I think to myself, well, maybe she's having a bad day. And so I pull over to the slow lane, let her pass. And she just zips right past. And no, I didn't look over at her to see if she was looking at me as she went by. I didn't do any of that. I just go, you know, I, I just need to pray for her. But inside, that's the heart that's just desperately wicked. It just immediately jumps to some fleshly type of activity. And, and then you have to subdue it, take every thought captive. And I didn't want to. I recognized at the same time I wanted to get even. She was inconveniencing me. She was making my life miserable. And I wanted to pay back. I wanted revenge, so to speak. 
And, and we do this. And this is why teachers, like if I tell you, you ought not to be angry. Anger, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, dissensions, factions, and the like. They're of the flesh. And I tell all of you, those things are the flesh. You ought not to. And then I go and I have a driving incident where I give into the anger. And the inside, you know, I, I didn't carry anything out, but on the inside, I have the same struggles that you do. But if I do carry it out, well, then I'm going to be judged more strictly because I know what is in here. Now, for those of you who know the word, I think the same thing applies. Even though you may not be a teacher, if you know what it says, we have a responsibility to do what is right. And we know that we will fail in that. Because there is no one who is without sin, but we do have somebody who intercedes for us, which is Jesus, and he forgives us our sin. But when the judgment comes and the rewards are handed out, you can either get rewarded or suffer loss of reward. Now, we are all called to salvation, just like teachers are called to teach. It says, but we ought always to thank God for you, beloved brothers, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Beloved brothers, by the Lord, because of the, uh, from the beginning, the Lord chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through the belief in the truth. So everyone is called to salvation. Priests were selected in Hebrews chapter 5. The scripture says, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. So you couldn't be a priest unless you were called by God to that specific task. Elders were appointed in Titus chapter 1 verse 5. It says he went to every town and was appointing elders according to Paul's direction. And pastors or teachers are also appointed. In Ephesians chapter 4, or they're selected, 4 verse 11, it says it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastor teachers. So it's an office that somebody is called to, and when they're called to that, they're called to a higher standard. Is that higher standard going to be breached? Yes, it is. Will they be judged more strictly as a teacher? Yes, they will. And part of the problem in context here. What makes teachers being judged more strictly? What makes them different from others inside the church? Well, they use their words, the words that they speak. They have knowledge, and that knowledge is used to guide and direct the church. And if they use their words to deceive or misdirect, they will be judged more harshly than the others inside the church. Now, there are people in ministry that do so for nefarious gain. They do it for money. And Paul talked about these people. They're around us today. A lot of televangelists are like that. They're just building their kingdom. Uh, Kenneth Copeland is one of them, worth over $400 million. I don't know why he needs $400 million. And he rebuked COVID and it's supposed to go away. Well, it didn't go away. Uh, I consider him a false teacher who is out there, not afraid to say so. <clears throat> but we know that we use our words, and I think he uses his words, Kenneth Copeland, will use his words to deceive the people who are out there. A lot of televangelists do. Remember Peter Popoff, who used a teleprompter, and his wife was in a trailer outside and broadcasts information to him to make him look like he was a prophet. He would know things about people, and that's all because it was on a card that his wife was reading to him from the trailer that he would hear in the ear prompter that he carried around with him. You know, and, and he did this to build his ministry, build his little kingdom. And, of course, he was deceived or deceiving in that. And a teacher is not to be deceiving in the words that they speak or the words that they deliver and so when it comes to what they say we want to make sure that we are judging scripture says that you're to judge 
what I say. If it's right or if it's wrong, and you're to use the scriptures. And if you find that I am in error, you're supposed to come to me and you're supposed to tell me. And if I see from scripture that you are correct, I am supposed to repent. I'm supposed to relent. I'm supposed to turn the other way and agree with you. That's the way teachers are supposed to operate. But there's some teachers that will not listen to any correction whatsoever. They will not change their minds. That's just the way it's going to be. And the pride is something that takes over. So when a, a teacher uses the tongue, it can provide direction. When he uses the tongue, it can produce destruction. And when he uses the tongue, it cannot permit outside dominion. And I'll get into that. So verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways including teachers in the context here. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. So he says, if you have that tongue and you use that tongue and you keep it in check, then you are a perfect individual. Now, being a perfect individual is difficult, uh, if not impossible in this life, but in the next life, it's not going to be quite so difficult because we will have our glorified bodies. Now, it says here in verse 3, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. I started looking into horses. Now, horses are wonderful animals. They can break your foot, no problem, just by stepping on it. An average horse can be, you know, 1,000, 1,500 pounds. The largest horse ever was 21.25 hands high. That's how they measure horses. You take a hand like this, 21 hands high. Okay, now that's way up there, 21 hands high. His name was Samson. It was later later changed to Mammoth. He was born in 1846. There was a picture of this guy, just huge. He weighed 3,360 pounds. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with weight, but if you took a cubic um, yard of soil, that's three feet by three feet by three feet, that weighs approximately 2,000 pounds. So about a yard and a half of soil. So you can imagine what that would be in your mind. Then he was the heaviest horse. There's another horse in history. Uh, and he was called Dr. Laguerre. He was 21 hands high, and he weighed 3,000 pounds. So huge horses. Now, how do you guide the horse? How do you get a hold of him and say, you know, we're going to lead you in a particular direction? Well, I looked up, and there are 11 bit bridles out there. I'm sure there's more, but I, I saw this chart of all these bridles that they stick into the horse's mouth. And it's a piece of metal that goes across the horse's mouth inside. And some horses don't like that. Some people don't like to use those. And like I said, I've looked up 11 different ones. There are more than that, I'm sure, which are out there. And then there's a different type, a bitless bridle. There are side pull, mechanical, hackamore, cross under, bossel, uh, scraw brig, convertible, and wheel hackmore. Now, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with those. Uh, I have no idea what all those are, but it's a bridle that goes across the nose area of the horse, and some go underneath, and there's different modifications for each one of those, and that's how they guide the horse. Now, imagine guiding a horse 3,360 pounds with this little bridle that just goes across his nose, and all you're doing is pulling a rope, pulling the head one way or pulling the head the other way, and it's just a little strap 
that goes across the nose of the horse and you're able to lead that horse or take ships for example in verse 4 although they are so large and are driven by strong winds they are steered by a very small rudder whenever the wherever the pilot wants it to go now i started looking up well how big does a rudder have to be for the ship in size you know does a rudder have to be huge or can it be small well i i did some research on it and they calculated depending on the type of ship it's 2% of the water displacement of the ship. And 2%, now I worked this out. This is a ruler. This is the size of a ruler here. Now this ruler is 12 inches long or 30 centimeters. And the size of the, the rudder is that big. That little rudder, that's a quarter inch, will control the whole ship. I wanted to give you guys a visual on how small that rudder is compared to the entire ship. And then verse 5 says, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, the world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So, the size of the tongue in proportion to the damage it can do is huge. It's massive out there. Now, you remember World War II and Hitler, he was a, an orator. Because of the words that he spoke, and he was not originally the leader, he, would, he just started having meetings. I did a little research on him uh, previously. He would just start having meetings, and people liked what he had to say, and so more people kept on listening to him, and that's how he rose to power, because he was a great orator. And because of what he did, millions of people died. The things that he said, millions of people died. And I think he had um, animus towards the Jews, because the Jews were the ones that were successful in Germany at the time. They were the ones who were the money makers, and that's why his animus was directed towards them, and that's where the Jews uh, started to be lost there. And of course, we know how that all ended, but it's this idea of the tongue in proportion to the damage it can do. It is very, very small. Words can change the course of a person's life forever. Uh, Patty and I, we, we watched some war flicks uh, about World War II, and there's just some interesting facts uh, about World War II. And how many young men, 17, 18, 19, 20, went there and fought and died or were maimed, and it changed the course of their lives because of one person speaking in Germany? I mean, millions of people have been affected by that and that's just one war well what about slander colossians 3 8 says but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger rage malice slander and filthy language from your lips and titus 3 1 remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good to slander no one to be peaceable considerate and to show true humility towards all men some people say this is contributed to mark twain but a lie travels around the globe while the truth is still putting on its shoes. And, and you know, you, the lie just needs a little bit of effort out there and can remain for a little while. And the damage is already done. It already changes the hearts of people before the truth ever comes out. 
That's why sometimes when we used to get things called newspapers, when the newspapers would come out, if something was a lie on the front page, a retraction would be on B7, you know, way in the back. It wouldn't be on the front page again the next day because the intended purpose of the lie was what was to remain, and people believe it. Remember um, Sarah Palin? Remember her? Uh, She said that she could see Russia from her house. She didn't say that. It was something on Saturday Night Live. It was, it was set on Saturday Night Live, but then it was attributed to her, and it was to make her look dumb or like an imbecile. And, and so these lies, especially in the political realm, they get out there, and then nobody cares about the truth once the lie has taken its place. And then there's the tongue. It cannot permit outside dominion it cannot be tamed verse 7 says all kinds of animals birds reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man but no man can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison you imagine that you have poison in your mouth that thing that's in your mouth can cause so much damage you know in my little traffic incident if i would have gotten out and i would have pointed at her i would have caused all kinds of damage people behind her would have been honking and i would have yelled at you know if i would have let the flesh just take hold and that's where we're supposed to take every thought captive in this idea of poison is poison of asps which is under the lips or vipers which is there We have that ability to destroy with the very words that we utter. And this can be malevolent. Another word is opprobrious or abusive or offensive or insulting. We can do that all day long. And we do it to hurt. We do it to maim. We do it to get satisfaction of our flesh. And it would be highly inappropriate for any teacher to misuse the tongue In any one of these ways, verse 9 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be both, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The question is no. It's rhetorical. My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And so we have to have just a grip on our tongue and the things that we say then for all of us that is probably the most difficult task that we will have in this life in verse 13 it says who is wise and understanding among you let him show up by his good life by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom but in your but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast about it or deny the truth such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly unspiritual and of the devil remember james is writing to the jews and when he writes to the jews here he talks to those that are also teachers and how they're supposed to act and how they're supposed to do the good deeds and have the good life and be humble and full of wisdom and don't harbor the bitter envy and selfish ambition because that's what they were doing that's just part of life that's what we do we harbor selfishness the selfish ambition which is there it just oozes from out of our pores and we have to subdue it that's our task in this life verse 16 says for where you have envy and selfish ambition and this is in the context of teachers and using the tongue there you will find disorder or confusion in every evil practice but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace loving considerate submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere 
peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So godly teachers will reap peace because they sow in peace, and godly teachers use wisdom to reap a harvest of righteousness. May the Lord give you a faith that is just vibrant and full of good works, that you choose to do the good works when they are presented to you, and may you be able to control the tongue. You know, it's easy to control the tongue at church. Super easy. When you get away from church, not so easy. When you get out there in life, in traffic, in lines, when you meet other people, how many times do you say, there's so many people. I wish they'd just go home. Why, these people, they're just ruining my life. There's so many of them. Oh, and then there's these people who complain, and, and then you complain about the people who complain. You, you see how it works? God wants us to just be full of wisdom, calmness, hold that tongue back, subdue those thoughts that come in that want us to act in the flesh. And you will be given the opportunity this week. I will pray for you. Let's pray. Father, I uh, ask for all of us who are in here, the opportunities to give into the flesh, to use the tongue in a way that is not fitting or holy or righteous. Help us, Lord, to be prepared for that. Help us to grab hold of those thoughts. Help us to subdue them and bury them and consider them crucified with your son Jesus on the cross. We thank you for the wisdom that you provide. We thank you that you had told us what our problems are and how to deal with them. And we ask for your grace, Lord, and for your mercy when we fail. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Please stand.